Welcome to Water Beyond Earth, a podcast series where we explore the world of lunar water extraction and purification. Our model example is the LUVEX project, a collaborative European endeavor for lunar water extraction and purification technologies. Join us as we present the project vision, as we examine the importance of water in space exploration and discuss the technical aspects of water extraction and purification. Each episode will bring you closer to understanding a future in which astronauts will sustain themselves and their exploration voyages by using the resources they find beyond Earth's boundaries. Hello and welcome to Water Beyond Earth podcast mini-series. My name is Monika Brandis-Lipinska and in this episode we will be talking about the water in the universe. We're happy to welcome James Carpenter, a physicist specializing in space astrophysics and planetary science. James Carpenter works at the European Space Agency as the lead for Moon and Mars Science and Moon Utilization Manager for ESA Directorate of Human and Robotic Exploration. He leads the development of new research activities for lunar and Martian exploration, has been involved in scientific missions related to the Moon and Mars, and has contributed to the formulation of strategies for lunar science and space research utilization at European Space Agency. Welcome, James. Hi. We're very happy to have you. Uh, and we want to talk in general about a water in the universe today, since Luvex project is all about water. Uh, it's specifically for about water on the moon, but we would like to talk with you about the water in the universe in general. Can you tell us more about it? Where can we find it? How we look for it? And what's the reason for looking for water in the universe in general? So, so water, of course, is, is one of the building blocks of life. And I think this is one of the things that uh, when you find water, especially liquid water, then you, you have a reasonable chance that, that life might have been there. Or at least you can say that life probably could live there. So I think that finding water is often a, a good pathway for, for finding life itself or at least understanding where some of the chemical building blocks of life might have come from. It's also something that's useful, right? So within a space exploration context, we're really interested in, in finding life is one of the things that we're, we're really interested in as a, as a program, but also finding out how humans are going to live and work beyond Earth in the future. And this is something that uh, is, I guess, one of the, the drivers of space exploration generally, both for, for us and, and agencies around the world. So water is, of course, useful in of itself, but it's, it's also hydrogen and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. So if we can find water in the solar system, we, we can both sort of trace the, the, the chemical history and the chemical origins of, of the life-enabling chemistry on Earth, but it also allows us to, uh, to potentially find utility, to find ways that we could generate some of the fundamental things that we're going to need to explore the solar system wherever we go. And for that, actually, the, the moon is a really important place. So the moon is where we start. Um, so we recently discovered, actually, during the Apollo era, the moon was dry, right? So nobody thought there was any water there anyway. We got the rocks back, and actually, even compared to the rocks on Earth, there's not a lot of water there. Uh, and that told us something about how the moon had formed, right? So the moon formed from the massive impact into the early Earth through this material up into space. But because it was very hot or very small, it lost all those volatile chemistry, right? So water was lost. But... So they went, okay, the, water, the, water, the moon's pretty dry. Except what happened in the last few years, some really interesting stuff happened. So one thing that happened was we started finding water in some minerals from the moon in some locations. So that changes a bit the idea of, okay, there is actually water inside the moon that's natural to the moon. And, and, and why is that there? And where 
did that come from? From an exploration perspective, I think the thing that's been really exciting in the last decade or so is the confirmation that there's water ice at the poles of the moon. So here, there's this idea, there's been an idea, been around for a very, very long time, that at the poles of the moon, because at the near the pole, the, the sun moves around you all the time, but it, so it almost never sets. Now that means that there are places where it's it's always sunny, so you can get energy, but nearby you have these uh, permanently shaded craters, places that never get light. These are some of the coldest places in the solar system. And there was an idea that you might be able to, to trap water in these locations. It's a very old idea. The first paper, the first scientific paper ever talking about this was from the 1890s. It was a, it was a French paper um, just suggesting that, that maybe you could, this could happen. And then no one really talked about it after that. In the 1960s, people started saying, yeah, well, maybe, just maybe, in these very cold places, you could get water trapped. Don't know where it would come from, but maybe you could find it there. And then we started seeing, not on the moon, but on Mercury, by shining radar, like radio waves, with massive antennae on Earth at Mercury and getting the reflections back, we were able to see at the poles of Mercury that there were reflected signatures showing that there was loads of ice in craters <clears throat> at the poles of Mercury. And well, maybe it's on the moon too. It's not obvious, but maybe it's there too, right? So uh, we started sending missions to the moon, uh, looking at the poles of the moon. And at first sight, you can't see anything, right? There aren't huge sheets of ice filling the, the craters and the poles of the moon. But when we look at uh, neutrons, from the pole to the moon, we see something that shows us that maybe, just maybe, there's something there. So the reason neutrons are important is cosmic radiation. This is radiation that's coming out from, from, from deep out in the cosmos, impacts into the poles of the moon. And when that happens, it hits the nuclei, the center of the atoms that are there, and creates secondary radiation. So radiation starts coming from the atoms that are in the regolith in this material that's at the poles of the moon. And that radiation includes neutrons. So neutrons, like in a nuclear reactor, in a nuclear reactor on Earth, you get loads of neutrons. And the way you control the nuclear reaction is you put in something to slow those things down. And we use water for that, or hydrogen, because hydrogen is a really good element for slowing down neutrons. So what we see is, if we look at the neutrons that are coming from the poles of the moon, what we see is that the energy of those neutrons is very slightly less than the energy of the neutrons that we see coming from other places. And that means there must be hydrogen. So we don't see water, but we see a very good clue that just maybe there's water there because that's the way you're probably gonna have hydrogen stored in these areas in the water. So that was a clue, okay, we can't see it, but there's a really good clue that it's there. So then in 2009, 2009, um, there was a mission called L-Cross. And L-Cross was a, actually quite a simple mission uh, and a very, very short mission. L-Cross had two spacecraft. There was an impacting spacecraft. Well, there was a, the Centaur upper stage, which was the, the, the bit of the rocket that would actually carry this thing to, to the moon. And there was a, a spacecraft that followed behind it. And this upper stage slammed into a crater where we thought there might be water ice in one of the coldest places in the solar system. And then this other spacecraft was flying behind it and flew through the plume of material that was thrown up by this impact, made some measurements of that plume, sent that data back, and then crashed into the moon itself. And in that data, 
in that data we see the first ever real evidence for actual water water so in that impact we've threw up water and the the estimate was that in that plume which represents basically the the bulk of a crater there's like you know, maybe you know tens of meters across hundreds of meters across um within that crater about five and a bit percent of what came out was water wow so the water wasn't even that deep if the crater like if the spacecraft crashed into it and the plume was already containing water exactly so we don't see it necessarily obviously at the surface but just beneath it but it's there it's there somewhere and not that deep so then we start to go oh well that's interesting well so it's there we know it's there at that one location we have evidence that it's widespread across the moon so what we have now from more recent missions we know the topography we know where the craters are and the hills and all that all that we know the temperatures of the surface we have indications of where the water might be but quite rough based on this neutron measurements that we see and we have this one point where we know that it's there what we don't know today is the abundance the distribution of that water but even in the hydrogen data this data from the uh, where the water's there we don't see um, a uniform distribution we don't necessarily see water in all the places we'd expect it to be based on the temperatures that we see so something much more complicated must be going on one of the things that was very interesting recently was well, there's been work done to look at how the the rotation of the moon might have changed over time and so what we see there is that the, the, the poles of the moon have not always been in the same place and so the places that are permanently shaded now, very cold now, might not always have been the places that were permanently shaded. And what we see there is you can see that there are some craters that have been dark for much longer than other craters. And what would be interesting is that might map onto where the water is, which would tell us something about when it was delivered. So if we want to understand where the water is and um, how much is there and whether it's useful, but also what it tells us about the building blocks of life, we have to go down there. So I'll talk a bit in a moment about going down there and why that's important. But first of all, the origins of this water is important, right? So we don't know where it comes from. It might have come from the inside of the moon. That seems pretty unlikely, right? Because we've looked at the rocks of the moon and there's not a lot of water in the rocks of the moon. So it's probably not from the moon. Maybe it is, probably not. It might be from um, uh, the solar wind. So one thing we've also discovered recently, which is, again, completely pre predicted, potentially measured in Apollo samples in the 60s, but we don't know, and now observed from orbit, is that water is being produced on the moon all the time. So the solar wind, so this is like streams of particles that are thrown out by the sun all of the time, is mostly hydrogen, just just ionized hydrogen protons and these things hit the surface of the moon when they do they actually grab some of the oxygen out of the minerals that are on the moon and they create little little molecules of water so and as you can see this orbit if you make spectra from orbit you can see that there's a very very thin veneer of water all over the moon it's not the same in every place we go and as that water so that's created on the surface and then as that heats up it gets hot and these molecules will jump off they'll hop off and they'll hop on they'll, they'll hop on little ballistic trajectories they go boing 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 everything they go up and they land and they get hot and they go up and they land and they go up and they go up and they land and it's completely random where they go 
But over time, the colder they get, the less likely they are to hop. And so over time, you'll get an accumulation in the colder places. And when they get into a permanently shaded crater, they're never going to go anywhere ever again. So this could be one mechanism that's creating this water ice. And if that's the case, then we'll know because the sun doesn't contain deuterium or very little deuterium, which is one of the isotopes of, of hydrogen. So there's different kinds of hydrogen. There's normal hydrogen and heavy hydrogen. And heavy hydrogen doesn't get made out of solar protons. So if we were to go to the polar, to the, these regions in the poles and we were to measure that hydrogen that's in that water and there's no deuterium, we know that probably that's come from this solar wind process, which is cool. The other place they probably come from, which is perhaps more likely as a kind of the majority, is from impacts from asteroids and comets. So asteroids and comets, some kinds of asteroids and comets contain lots and lots of water, lots of water. And this water, uh, when these things slam into the moon, which they have a lot in history in the past um, and continue to at smaller scale, you know, to this day, we have these constant raining down of impacts of smaller sizes. They're going to be delivering water to the moon. And the same is going to happen. It's going to impact. They're going to throw up these plumes of water and this water is going to go somewhere. Some will escape into space. A lot of it's going to end up back down on the surface of the moon where, again, the same thing's going to happen. It's going to hop, hop, hop and eventually get stuck. So maybe this stuff comes from those comets and asteroids. And again, we'll know because the ratio of this heavy water to the light water will tell us something about the origins. And um, so this is when we go around the solar system making measurements of water at different places. One of the things we try to do is to measure, well, how much heavy water is versus light water. And that tells us something about allowing to map where this hydrogen has come from, where this water has come from. And water from the sun, water on Earth, water in the different bodies. So in the different asteroids and things that we have, when you measure in re um, very early, very ancient asteroids, the water composition, it's a di it looks different to water that you'd find on Earth, water on the moon. And one of the, things, one of the clues we get wherever we go, we track that ratio and it tells us something about the processes that have led to its formation and creation. And one of the cool things about this is we think that all the water on the surface of the Earth, or most of the water on the surface of the Earth, the water's in the oceans, and it's in the rivers and the lakes and the clouds and the rain that's in us, probably didn't come from Earth. It was probably delivered to Earth later on from space. And by tracking that ratio of that water that we find in terrestrial water versus what we find elsewhere in the solar system, it helps us to understand where did that come from? That water that made life on Earth possible and continues to this day, where did that come from? How did that happen? So what the moon's really, this is really cool, because on the moon, that water, if that water that's in those polar regions represents, if you like, an averaging of all the different impactors that have come from all these different locations over time, from asteroids and comets, and things like that, which is the same population that's fed the Earth. And if that water looks exactly like terrestrial water, that's pretty cool. So, so water's interesting for that reason. The other thing we find is inside that water, inside those ices, we go and have ice. And we know from this L-cross impact that we also have um, other molecules that are in there, things that contain carbon. Now, carbon, of course, is the building block of life. Carbon, phosphor uh, and other chemicals, uh, along with water, are things that we need for life. And what we don't have a great understanding of is where the complex chemistry 
how that complex chemistry, you know, things like RNA and DNA and proteins and things like that, the building blocks of that, where did that come from? How did that get made? So one of the things that has been really exciting exploring uh, basic asteroids and, and comets, um, things like that, that were done with Rosetta, for example, um, we want to look at though that chemistry, that primordial organic chemistry, do we find in those locations that chemistry? And if so, that chemistry has been created in those locations. So the other thing we might look for in these ice as well as the water ice, you might look at the other chemistry that's there. And if we find complex chemistry there, the things that are kind of like the basic chemical building blocks of the things that we need to make life possible, then either they were delivered there from the comets and asteroids that created it, which is awesome, or it's been made there. So one of the things that could happen is, and there's, there's, there's scientific evidence to show that if you have ice and you put in some basic organic chemistry and then you pump that full of energy through radiation, you start irradiating that, you can create some quite complex chemistry. So you could have in these polar regions, in these ice, you could have a natural laboratory that's been sitting there for billions of years synthesizing organic chemistry in the ice through cosmic radiation and so if we can measure that and identify that that's going to tell us something about the fundamental processes that could have led to the formation of life enabling chemistry in the solar system which was then delivered to earth and made life possible here and might also be how life gets formed elsewhere in the solar system elsewhere in the cosmos so scientifically water ice and all the stuff that's in it is pretty awesome and that's why um, on the prospect package, which we're building to go to the moon and will fly in 2026 as a cooperation with NASA, we can talk more about that later. That cosmic chemistry and understanding that chemistry, we're to measure that chemistry and those ratios of all those different elements and how much of the different ones there are and the different kinds of those elements, so different kinds of carbon and different kinds of hydrogen, to be able to look at those ratios, to be able to map where those things have come from. That's one of the things we really built into that laboratory to be able to make those measurements on the moon so that's kind of the life part at the same time this water ice is really important for explorations we talked before about ice is useful right water is useful it's water you can drink it astronauts need that stuff it's also oxygen humans need that and oxygen hydrogen rocket fuel so potentially we have a fuel station on the moon that could take us anywhere else in the solar system we learn to do that on the moon then the asteroids and mars and the outer planets of jupiter they've all got gas stations too so and the moon is where we will learn how to use the resources of the solar system so that as we move out and we will we will learn the lessons there that'll make it possible for us to live and work elsewhere in terms of water on the moon we don't know how much it is we don't know where it is we don't know whether it's useful or what it would take to make that useful and so the next steps from a, a space exploration perspective are to, to learn those lessons. And to do that, we have to go down to the surface of the moon. We have to access that water and we need to measure it. We need to work out what is there and how much there is and to understand how that maps. Are the resources that we find on the moon reserves? That is, do they have an economic potential of some sort? And that is what we're trying to do in ESA with Prospect. It's what we're working on with the Japanese for their LUVEX rover, exploration rover. 
it's the thing that it's one of the main things that drives the Artemis program with the United States to the poles of the moon. And we're working with, with NASA on Artemis. Um, it's the reason why the Chinese would like to go to the Lunar South Pole. It's the reason why India wants to go to the Lunar South Pole. So everyone's going to the poles of the moon to try and understand this. And this is a really important thing for us to learn for the future of humanity in space. And so that, that is why we're doing that. I think I'll probably stop there. Yeah, I have already so many questions to everything you said and already so many new things. Uh, but when we're at the extracting water and, and actually learning about lunar water and utilizing it, how can we ensure that our actions on the lunar surface won't impact too much the lunar environment, lunar geology? How can we do that and I don't know, stay sustainable in that actions? And how can we ensure that I don't know, is there enough water or the water that we will use, will that be recreated somehow? Do we, I don't know, are there any actions towards that? The, the, the question you ask is a really, really important one. So one of the things I think for ESA that is important is sustainability. And one of the questions we'll be trying to answer scientifically as we start this exploration is, we need to understand what is there. We need to understand if it could be useful, where it is. That's a good step. And then we need to create an understanding of what does it mean to do this? If we take a decision to start to utilize the water on the moon, we as ESA or anybody else, what does that imply? How can we be responsible custodians of this place, of these resources and this environment? What we do know is if we start to use the resource of the moon, we will change it forever. It will never be the same again. And the question is, the question is, do we decide that that is something we are ready to do? And if we decide to do that, how are we going to make sure we do that in the most responsible way that we can? Um, I'll give you some examples. Um, the moon has a very tenuous atmosphere. Um, it's very tenuous. It's so interact that the individual molecules and atoms in that atmosphere never interact with each other. They just hop around. And it's actually called an exosphere. Um, and so the moon is a unique example of this close to Earth of a, a surface-bound exosphere. Um, and that's something we've experienced. All the, the moons of the outer planets, any airless body in space will have an exosphere of some sort. And the total mass of the lunar exosphere is about the same as the amount of gas in the exhaust of an Apollo landing. So what that means is, if we really start to explore the moon, the exosphere is gone. Now, if we stop exploring the moon, it will recover. But as long as we have activity there, the exosphere will, will not exist as it does today. And so one thing we might want to understand is, what does that look like today? So that at least we understand what we're doing, right? So, we, so, so the, first, the first stage in being a responsible custodian is to understand what's there to begin with. And so that's something we, we will try to do. Once you understand that, we can understand the effects. If we start digging holes on the moon, those holes are not going to refill themselves. They're not going to come back. The, the astronaut footprint, one of the things thing was quite powerful for me, with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, we now have cameras that are so powerful that they can photograph, you know, the, the, you can see astronaut footprints on the moon from space, right? They're still there. Armstrong walked on the moon more than 50 years ago. His footprints are still there. What that tells you, if you go to the moon and you dig a massive hole, that hole's not going anywhere. It's going to be there for a very, very long time. Um, 
And so we just have to be aware that everything we do there is permanent. Um, and in terms of these deposits themselves, we don't know yet where that water comes from, right? So if that water is something that's that's being replenished, if there are for, you know, formation mechanisms and loss mechanisms happening at the same time, there's some kind of equilibrium going on, then over time it will recover. We have no idea what that time scale is, but it would recover. To me, that seems pretty unlikely on a timescale that's of any interest in terms of human civilization. I suspect that's unlikely. If this water was all deposited and during the early epochs of the solar system by comets, it's never coming back. So the other thing we do is if, and if these areas are of real scientific interest, we talked a little bit earlier on about why they're scientifically interesting. If we start digging them up, that's going to change the scientific merits of those things. Now, there is a wonderful synergy where as we go and dig these places up, we're also going to be taking samples and learning things that's important scientifically. But we are going to change those environments. So there's two aspects to that, I think. There's one is about, well, a few aspects. One is about understanding what's there to start with. Then there's understanding what might resp responsible custodianship and, and you know, a, a, a responsible utilisation of those resources look like. Um, and then there's a part about making sure that everybody agrees to do it that way. And that's, I think that's probably the hardest part, is getting all the different actors who may have an interest in using these resources to agree that there is a way that we ought to do that together that represents responsible custodianship and that we all need to be responsible custodians. And who, who has authority over that? Who regulates that? Who makes decisions around that? And today I have absolutely no idea. But that's, some, that's one of the challenges for, for all of us, as, a, as a, I think, the, internationally, is deciding on these things. But we can only make those decisions based on a scientific base, and that's what we're working to generate today. And do you think when we go to the moon to extract water, will there be any areas that are strictly protected, that we want to keep some areas like specifically for keep it as it is and do not touch, as I imagine could be in case of Mars, where we're saying that you cannot go there because that's where life or processes can happen. Would that be a case on the moon? Or it could be too complex with all of the actors? And Well, I think that there are, there are a lot of discussions going on around how you might do this. And so there are ideas, for example, that maybe you choose one pole and you say you can have that one, but the other one we, we protect for science. So, so there, there are different schemes around that that maybe could look a little bit like that. It's true in terms of planetary protection, you know, the the, the kind of rules we apply for planetary protection. Um, the uh, the Moon and Mars are very different in terms of the the, the kind of the, the way that we would apply that. Um, for um, but in terms of once you've decided that this is how we're going to do it, you have the challenge of who has decided that. And who is obliged to to work within those constraints, and, and who's going to enforce it? Um, but in terms of certainly the different schemes that are being discussed for how that might look in the future, um, noting that we also we don't want to impose things that are going to make it impossible to do something useful. Like if we genuinely have an interest in using the resources of the moon as a way of getting beyond and learning how to live and work off world as something that we as a species fundamentally would like to do, then we don't want to constrain our ability as a civilization to do that based on something that we don't need to. So I think that there's a, there's a balance to be met there between the, the different competing needs and interests. 
and, and I think the challenge will be to, to find that that balance and then to make sure that everyone agrees that that's the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And you said that it could be that the water is constantly created on the moon by space radiation hitting the, the rocks on the moon. So would there be a chance to enhance that process that you can produce water on the moon? Um, it's being discussed that maybe there are ways you could do that. Um, I think that the limit there is the amount of hydrogen that's coming from the sun, right? So there's only so much hydrogen, so much solar wind that's happening. So, um, so certainly in principle, yes, you could use that as a way of making water. Um, my expectation is that the amount of area that you would need and the amount of time that you would need to generate enough that it's useful would be long enough that it's prohibitive, that you wouldn't want to do it that way. Um, but certainly I've heard that idea suggested. Um, but you can also make water in other ways too. So um, all of the rocks on the moon, like rocks generally, um, are a combination of oxygen and metals. Right? That's what minerals are, basically, what rocks are. And the moon is covered in a ground-up soil, it's called a regolith, which has been generated by billions of years of impact into the rocks of the moon that's ground this up into this, this, this loose sort of uh, granular material. So if you could take that material and you could take out all of the oxygen from the rocks in that material, you would produce oxygen and you'd be left with metallic alloys. And so one of the things that we've been doing is looking at processes uh, that don't necessarily produce water, but that produce oxygen from those materials um, using uh, thermochemical and electrochemical processes to get those out. Um, one of the processes that we've looked at um, is, uses hydrogen reduction. Where you bring your own hydrogen, use that hydrogen at a very high temperature to pull the oxygen out, and then the product that you make from that is water. Um, so that's another way you can make water, but you do need to bring your own hydrogen for that. I was really fascinated by the ways of looking for water, as you were explaining with the search for nutrients. Um, but then I also know, like, when we look at Mars, there are, there are these pictures that you can basically tell that it looks like water used to be there because of the topology of Mars. Would that be another way of looking for water? You can tell us, like, how, how what is what is the water history with Mars then? Right. So, so, so Mars is very different. So, so Mars is a very different environment. It has a very different place. Um, liquid water um, is even around probably at the surface now from time to time. Um, very shallow depths on Mars. Uh, you think there's water ice likely to be there. There is a mission that's being um, prepared as, a, as an idea at the moment, um, not, with, not with Eastern involvement, called a Mars Ice Mapper, which would be looking from orbit to map ice on Mars that's within, you know, uh, fairly close to the surface um, as a potential resource for the future. Uh, we know that at the poles of Mars, near the poles of Mars, there's water ice. You know, it's, it's very clear. Um, and we see features all over Mars that mean that it must have been wet at some point. And, and, we, and then we're getting a better and better idea of the water history of, on Mars. And we find minerals on the surface now that, that you know, show that there has been water there and that, that there are got a, a complex history. It's one of the things that gives us confidence that you know, the, the, the Mars has been habitable in the past. It doesn't mean it was habited, 
but it, it has been habitable. There is life on Earth that could have existed on Mars, and <clears throat> there is life on Earth that could probably exist on Mars now. Now, whether there is any life on Mars, um, we've remains to be seen. Whether there is or has been, um, but one of the things that, that ExoMars, the the, uh, the Rosin Franklin rover from ESA, is planning to do is to make measurements beneath the surface of Mars for the first time to look for um, chemical signs that life has been there or maybe is even there now. And the samples that are being picked up on the surface now for the Mars Sample Return Project, which is something that ESA are collaborating with NASA on, uh, will return samples to Earth. Um, and those samples will also be uh, then um, investigated by labs all over the world uh, to look for life and look for the chemistry that shows that life may or may not have been there at some point in the past. I have a question that may be stupid, but why we always talk only about a water in the ice form? Is it the matter of pressure or lack of atmosphere? Or is there any other reason why there cannot be liquid water with like assuming that the temperature is right? Yeah. So water can exist as either a gas, as a liquid or as a solid. Um, and um, in the absence of an atmosphere, water liquid doesn't really exist. So water liquid can only exist under a very particular set of temperatures and pressures. And we tend not to find those temperatures and pressures very much in the solar system out away from Earth. It's one of the things that makes Earth very special. So, so if we find water in the solar system or away from Earth, you will tend to find it either as a gas or as a solid um, because it, it can't really exist in any other form most of the time. One of the things that's really exciting about Mars is that Mars has environments where water liquid can exist now so this is where it so this is one of the reasons why why mars is a very exciting place in terms of looking for present life is that water water liquid water can exist and that creates a, a possibility that the life could exist there too and it increases the uh, that likelihood but then actually as we move into the outer solar system we go to the the, the, the icy planets or the icy moons around sort of jupiter and saturn what we find there is that there are very good signs. We have very we have a lot of confidence that we have real massive liquid oceans of water that sit below the ice layers because we have there a, a pressure and a temperature which allows liquid water to exist, and that's very exciting in terms of looking for for life. And so, without going into too much detail, the the missions that we find going to the outer solar system now, a lot of those are very interested in these these icy moons. Um, because they have these these liquid water oceans, um, which uh, could harbor life again, could harbor some of the building blocks of life, and we really really don't don't know what we might find there. It's a, it's a very very alien territory. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Like, um, it, it's fascinating with the search for life and search for water. And does this mission differ somehow when you look for water? How do you direct the mission for? look for water when you look, want to look for life or look for water for the utilization of water if that makes sense like i guess moon is specifically for utilization like we don't really assume there might be life there we we want to extract water because we want to build habitats there and start from there to go to mars and and other places in the solar system but does this mission somehow in terms of planning different how do you look for it or or what criteria you take under consideration to choose the place to go to I think the, the way you define a mission depends a little bit on what you're trying to achieve, but there is a sweet spot where you get to a little bit of everything. 
And so if we think Prospect, for example, which is our package that's going to go to the, the South Pole of the Moon um, in 2026, it's going to, to that, that's going to drill beneath the surface. Um, it's going to take samples. Those samples will then be heated up. And as they're heated, water, ice, and, and other chemistry that's in there that can be released at those temperatures up to around 1,000 degrees will then be ejected into our uh, chemical laboratory. And that's where the... Um, so in both cases, you're going to want to send... Um, in here, we're interested in both... Um, water as a potential resource and water uh, and the other volatiles that are there, the chemistry that's there as a, uh, a way of exploring uh, the origins of this kind of chemistry in the inner solar system, which has implications for the origins of life and other things too. So in that case, we want to go to the same place, um, but the kind of measurements you want to make are not necessarily the same. So in the laboratory, we have the capacity to measure how much water's there and what are the what's this this ratio that I talked about on that water. So by doing that, we can understand a bit like what the origins are, so we can understand better the processes that led to it being there, which help us to understand better where we might find it and what the other, you know, what the other key things around that as a utility might be. But that, together with the other chemical measurements that we'll make, will tell us something about the broader chemistry that's there and why that's important and relevant to things like emergence of life and, and other things. So what maybe where you get some divergence. So the divergence can be in the specific measurements you want to make. They can be a little bit different, but if you can combine those things and you get everything. Where you want to go is probably similar because you want to access the same stuff. If you're looking for life specifically, then you may be less interested in the water particularly than you are the other chemistry that's there and the places you might find that. So that might send you to somewhere a little bit different geologically speaking. If you're looking for water ice as well as a resource, then you also need to understand the mapping of that ice. So where is it? What's the abundance? How does it vary as a function of space? Whereas if you're looking for life, you might be much more interested in having identified where there is something, getting in there and analysing it in much more detail as a, as a single place to, to, to get the, rather than mapping it as a whole. So there, there are different, so strategically in terms of the way you plan the missions are very different, but there's a, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of commonality. And I think as we look to forward to the way we do space exploration and the way we plan our missions, I expect that we'll be trying to find that sweet spot where we both prepare future exploration and address that question of whether there's, there's life beyond Earth. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like it could be the most important missions, like search for water and together with search for life. Like, is there anything more important than that, like more fascinating than that happening in space exploration? <laughs> I think what's important, what's fascinating, are, are very much uh, uh, something subjective. It's something uh, different <laughs> things. Uh, my my personal feeling is is that for uh, for an exploration program, which is where I'm from, I'm from the, the exploration program of ESA. These to me are are two of the biggest questions that we have. I think the questions, the biggest questions we have are, what's it like in the places where we're going? Mm-hmm. What does that do to stuff? What does that do to biology, to people, to the technologies that we're going to depend on? And, and what are we going to do about those effects? Yeah. Is there life elsewhere in the solar system? Like, has there been? And what are the impacts that that might have on the way that we explore? And what's there that's useful? How are we going to use the things that we find in a responsible way to make space exploration possible and to enable this human journey beyond Earth? And I think those, for me, that's what, those are the things that I think we'll be trying to explore 
in our exploration missions in the, in the years to come. And I think that's something which is of profound importance for, for humanity, actually. Yeah, I think that's, that's a perfect sentence to finish with. <laughs> it was amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm fascinated. I want to keep reading now about like search for water and, and these methods. It's my, I'm mind blown. Like I knew about some of these things, but the way how you talk about it as well, it's, it's very inspiring. Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm happy <laughs> to have inspired you to find out more. Um, I think this is, I think this is an important journey. It is, it is definitely. It's, it's important. It's fascinating and it's great to be part of it and follow it basically how to see the, all of these missions and developments and what's happening in space exploration and the, the fact that it's very near future or even present. That's, that's really amazing. <laughs> we're building flight hardware now, right? We, we, we're building the stuff right now that's going to fly. Yeah, yeah. I've been working on this for quite a long time. I'm very excited when I see that the stuff we've been we're talking about for a lot of years is, is being built now and, and being able to work with all international partners. And, and just seeing internationally, over the next few years, we're going to see, it, it's, it's been slow starting, but the, the number of missions going to the moon and to Mars in the coming years is, is really mind-blowing what's about to happen. It's going to be fun. Thank you so much, James. That was that was absolutely amazing. No, thank you. The podcast miniseries Water Beyond Earth is hosted by Luvex, a research consortium funded by the European Union Horizon 2022 Space Science and Exploration Technologies Program under grant agreement number 10108937.